live from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host Charlotte Hancock and today for the first time uh, our new-ish organizing director um, is joining us uh, as my other co-host today. Hi everyone, my name is Edwith Theogene. I'm the organizing director for Generation Progress and happy to be with you all today. Thanks for joining us, Edwith. So Edwith and I are going to be your co-hosts today. Brent is out for the holiday today, um, but is likely to be back in studio with us um, in the weeks to come. So uh, today uh, we want to start with, um, I mean, October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Uh, which was brought into existence in 1981 by the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence as a Day of Unity for Domestic Violence Prevention Advocates across the country. And since then, the conversation around domestic violence has really uh, evolved significantly. Between 1993 and 2010, the overall rate of domestic violence dropped nearly two-thirds thanks to the tireless work of activists and advocates to change the conversation around domestic violence and introduce and pass legislation to target perpetrators of domestic violence and abuse. Still, it's a huge problem. Uh, Roughly one in four women and one in nine men have experienced severe intimate partner violence. Domestic violence and intimate partner violence often affects people of, well, affects people of all races, genders, income levels, and geographic areas. But people from marginalized communities who have experienced domestic violence often aren't centered in that conversation or given the resources and support that they need. So to discuss the work that is being done in this space uh, and what still needs to happen to make all people safer, today we are joined by Mohini Lal, the staff attorney at the National Network to End Domestic Violence, and Kimberly Inez McGuire, the executive director of URGE, uh, which is Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Um, so. Let's just go ahead and uh, start right in. And um, Mohini, can you share a little bit about your background in both the domestic violence and the legal space? Um, And what is the mission of the National Network to End Domestic Violence? What is it that uh, sort of brought you to this work? um, And what is it that you're, you're doing with your organization? So I started working in domestic violence in 2013. I did the 40-hour Illinois Certified Domestic Violence Professional Training, and I graduated from Chicago Kent College of Law in Chicago. Um, I worked at a few domestic violence legal organizations in Chicago, and then I was an If When How fellow and joined the National Network to End Domestic Violence as a staff attorney for womenslaw.org, which is a legal information website. Now, the mission of the National Network to End Domestic Violence um, is to, we're a social change organization. We're dedicated to creating a social, political, and economic environment in which violence against women no longer exists. The Women's Law Project specifically provides plain language legal information for 54 states and territories in English and Spanish, and we focus on legal issues survivors of domestic violence often face, like restraining orders, divorce, custody, and other related issues. We also have our email hotline where survivors, their friends and families, domestic violence advocates and attorneys can write in with legal questions and you'll get an answer reviewed or written by an attorney within five business days. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of really great work and a lot of um, 
direct services, which is um, just huge in this space. Also, I appreciate your inclusion of uh, the mention of territories there. Um, so thank you for doing work um, <laughs> outside of the contiguous US. Um, and Kimberly, can you talk to us a bit about you and your organization, URGE, um, and what is URGE working towards? Absolutely. So personally, I come to this work as a queer Latina, as a survivor of domestic violence and of sexual assault, and as someone who worked as a rape crisis counselor before I even kind of got into doing this work professionally. So this is very personal to me, and I think um, so many of us, right, either have experienced or love or know someone who's experienced some form of intimate partner violence. So this really is an issue that touches all of us. Um, my organization, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, we are a young people's reproductive justice organization centering the experiences of young people of color and queer and trans young folks. So what we're doing is we are organizing and mobilizing young people in the South and the Midwest for reproductive justice. We're engaging in culture shift campaigns and we're sparking honest, important conversations about sex education, healthy sexuality, experiences of violence and the need for reproductive health care. And most of all, for young people, all these issues are connected. So we, we enter the space from an intersectional lens that recognizes that, particularly for survivors of violence, race, gender, age, all of these things really matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, uh, Edwith, here we talk so much about how uh, diverse um, younger generations of Americans are. Uh, we talk so much about how, um, I mean, each of the each of the identities and issues that you just mentioned, um, people are impacted um, differently and disparately, and sometimes um, with with <laughs> in multiple ways, and sometimes have multiple uh, multiple things to think through. Um, so I appreciate the fact that you guys are approaching this from an intersectional lens. Um, it's really important to millennials and Gen Z. Um, we're the largest and diverse uh, generation, most diverse generations this country has ever seen. So this work's just going to become more and more important and the approach that you guys are taking really well as well. Yeah, I think it's super important to have this intersectional approach. So it's something that we really value. Um, I'd like to go on with the next question. Mohini, uh, this month is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, as we've already shared at the top of this conversation. What about domestic violence have you or your organization found to still be mis misunderstood or underexamined? What needs to change in order to further the goal of ending domestic violence? There are a lot of persistent myths around domestic violence. Um, NNEDV has a campaign called 31 Ways to Challenge Domestic Violence Myths, and we only limited it to 31 because October has 31 days. Um, there, we also have a conversation guide on the NNEDV website. But one that I've seen come up a lot lately, and some of this has to do with the fact that I work on a website, is the idea that survivors who are being harassed online or through technology should just stop using the internet and go offline or off-grid. And that really misunderstands the role of technology and the internet in people's lives. Um, people use their phones and the internet to stay safe, to contact their friends, their families, their children. They use their phones and online activity for work. I was asked for my Twitter handle before coming on the show today. My online presence is a part of how I interact with the world. It's a part of how I participate in not only my personal life, but my professional life. So to say, to tell a survivor to just stop existing in public, to stay safe, it's not an option for most people. So on Women's Law, we have information about abuse using technology. NNEDV has a special project called SafetyNet about the misuse of technology. But one of the things that really needs to get stressed out in the world is that people can't just stop existing in this huge sphere of life just because it's they're being threatened in the sphere of life. They're also being threatened out in the streets. They're being threatened in their homes. You can't just keep outrunning 
existence to stay safe. It has to be about the person who's hurting you, not about the ways you're being hurt. I think that's really important because what you're bringing up to is a big conversation around shrinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why do we as individuals who are impacted by violence or impacted by all of those different kinds of dynamics have to kind of like change our lives, you know, and shrink out of existence. So that's really important. Yeah, and it goes along with a lot of the myths that are about domestic violence, right? Like, why don't they leave? Why don't they just do this? And it's always asking, why doesn't the survivor do something different? Instead of asking, why doesn't this abuser do something different? Right. Why is the abuser engaging in this behavior? And I think we shy away from that because we don't want to center abusers, right? We don't want to center the person we think is doing the harm. But to stop the harm, we do have to think about why a person is enacting harm. Yeah. Um, I also love the point that you made about uh, the digital space uh, sphere being the public sphere. Um, I mean, you're totally right. I don't, I don't know of anybody who... Uh, you one like one would suffer professionally, one would suffer socially. Um, it, it without I, so much of our lives are lived online. So much of what I do and how I communicate with my friends, it's over Instagram, it's over Twitter, um, it's on Facebook. Although I mean, let's Facebook's has got its own set of problems right now. <laughs> um, to ask somebody um, to just sort of remove themselves from that space um, and further isolate themselves, as opposed to um, putting the onus um, on a perpetrator. Um, is is uh, totally, I agree, like the wrong mindset. And um, right. it's a great, great question. Like, why are, why are we framing things that way? Right. Um, Some of us just can't opt out. I work on a website. What am I supposed to do if I'm in an abusive situation where someone is using the internet against me? Right, absolutely. Um, so we're about to go to commercial break here. Um, and we're talking to Mohini Lal uh, from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, as well as uh, Kimberly Inez McGuire um, from Urge. And we'll be right back with you after this commercial break to talk a little bit more about Domestic Violence Awareness Month um, and why it's so important. of the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I am your other co-host, Edwith Theogy. Um, and today we're joined in studio um, by Mohini Lal from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, as well as Kimberly Inez McGuire from Urge. And we are talking today about domestic violence as October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Yeah. So let's jump right back into our conversation. Um, so reproductive justice is the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. It is a movement and a framework that was coined by visionary black women activists in 1994. Kimberly, as we talk about intimate partner violence and domestic violence awareness month, um, why is the reproductive justice framework so important to keep um, at the center of this conversation? Such a great question. I'm so glad to, to talk about the, the connections between reproductive justice and justice for survivors. So to me, reproductive justice is really about being able to be safe and healthy and to self-determine in our own bodies. And when we're experiencing violence, that just can't happen. 
So on a very basic level, the way in which reproductive justice speaks to the human need and, and the human right to feel safe and to live our lives with dignity and with justice, um, that just can't happen when we're experiencing violence. And and the more that we start to understand the data and how these intersections work, the more we see the connection. So for example, we know that when someone is pregnant, they are more likely to experience intimate partner violence and less likely to be able to see a pathway to leave that relationship, right? So there's all these connections. I mean, look at an issue like sex ed, right? So in most of this country, we have little to no sex ed. We don't have conversations about healthy relationships. And so as a result, People aren't talking about healthy relationships and, frankly, how to have a nonviolent relationship until they get to college. And what most people don't realize is if we are not talking about intimate partner violence until college campuses, which is true for most folks, you're already talking to an audience of survivors and perpetrators of violence. So it's actually happening too late. And also, uh, not everybody goes to college. Right. Exactly. (laughs) If that's the only place that people are getting this information, does that mean that we only have certain sections of the population who deserve this information? Or, um, I mean, that's a, a really limiting, um, a limiting sort of like way to determine access. Exactly, exactly. There, there needs to be public conversations about this. And I, and I think actually reproductive justice also provides an entry point for that because we know that reproductive justice centers the experiences of those most marginalized. Right. So a big part of what's necessary in this conversation is to acknowledge, for example, that queer and bisexual folks are more likely to experience intimate partner violence, right? And how can we understand what is the experience of, for example, of a black or a black or brown trans woman who experiences violence and who then is told that her only recourse is to engage with a police and legal system that is actually created to cage and harm and frankly kill folks who look like her. Right. And so I think that the question, too, of what the solution is to violence, reproductive justice speaks to because it questions right, the mass incarceration, which unfortunately is still offered to many survivors as the only recourse for justice. That's really awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Something that came up during the break, which I also thought was interesting. So a lot of us who are now on this call, Kimberly, And Mohini and I, sorry about that, Mohini and I, like, we all have, like, reproductive justice uh, backgrounds, and we were really excited to kind of bring that to the conversation. And something that you said over the break, Mohini, which was interesting, I was like, oh, let's get excited. We're about to talk about reproductive justice. And you're like, isn't it all reproductive justice? I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that and share that with our audience. Um, Sure. I mean, I think it, all of these aspects of our life, right, like living free of violence, the last thing you said, for instance, right, like that, it strikes me every day. You know, I'm I'm reading articles every day. I'm thinking about what we're going to, what I'm going to share with somebody who writes with me, what information I'm going to give them. We have information about safety planning with children. We're thinking about adding information about specifically how domestic violence affects children, right? You have people writing in to me, um, you know, we were just talking about like who has the right to get this information, who gets mm-hmm. access, and when do they get ex- access? And I recently read an article where somebody was talking about they had a lot of teenagers writing into them, and I just wrote um, our page on abuse among teens and young adults. People write in of every age asking, "Is this normal?" And the hard answer is, it is normal. Mm. It happens all the time. If by normal you mean, does it happen, and is it common, and does every like does one out of four women and do one out of nine? Um, men and do countless trans women and countless trans men and ju- gender nonconforming people experience it. Yes, it's normal. Domestic violence is absolutely normalized in our society. Um, 
that doesn't mean it's healthy. And we haven't struck that line in our society yet. Um, And I think reproductive justice does provide a framework for us to talk about the difference between normal and healthy. It is normal for people to live in fear in a lot of places. It is normal for people to live with the threat of violence in a lot of places. It's normal to live without autonomy and reproductive autonomy in a lot of places. Um, And it's normal to have or not have children um, against your will, depending on what you actually want in a lot of places. That doesn't mean it's healthy and it doesn't mean it's right. And we're still talking about and really figuring out how to draw those lines in America. Yeah, um, and I, I, Edwith, I appreciate appreciate that you opened this segment with a question um, about reproductive justice and why that framing is important. Because I think um, uh, Edwith and I, um, in in work recently, we've been talking a little bit about how it's sort of like a buzzword, and a lot of people, I think, probably a lot of our listeners don't actually. Um, this might be like the first time um, they're having like a deep dive into the reproductive justice framework, um, and so I think it's great that um, we're having this sort of like much more expansive. Conversation like people hear reproductive justice, people hear the word reproductive um, and they think, so. oh, you're talking about like access to birth control, right? Um, and I think that um, it's great that uh, both of the work that you're doing um, is uh, more, <laughs> this is a, just talking about how it's much more all-encompassing um, that is. So um, yeah, I, I think that having a little bit more of a deep dive on that is great. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to continue talking about it and recognizing that reproductive justice um, can provide us with solutions, as Kimberly shared. And um, as you're sharing, Mahini can also provide us with some context and understanding and lay of the land of like what exactly is happening when we talk about reproductive justice and violence against, um, and domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Um, Kimberly, we know that next week, URGE will be organizing a week of solidarity focused on marginalized communities and reproductive justice issues. Uh, Can you share a bit more about the week of solidarity and its goals and purpose? Absolutely. Um, We are really excited to be working with other reproductive justice as well as reproductive health rights and other allied partners to put together a week of solidarity really focused on the experiences of survivors, survivor justice, and complicating the conversation around intimate partner violence so that we are centering the experiences of black and brown folks, of queer and trans folks, and kind of interrupting what I think is often a dominant narrative that really puts a heterosexual cisgender white woman at the center of this conversation and ignores so many others, right? Thanks so much for that, Kimberly. And we're about to go to a commercial break here. Um, you're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I want to pick back up on that when we come back for the commercial. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And your other co-host, Edward Theogene. Um, and uh, today we have uh, Mohini Lal from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, um, as well as Kimberly Inez McGuire from Urge. And right before the break, we were talking um, with Kimberly about a national week of action that uh, or- Urge is organizing, or a week of solidarity um, focused on marginalized communities and uh, reproductive justice issues. Um, and Kimberly, and I wanted to make sure that folks knew where to find more information about that. Absolutely. So the week of solidarity will be from October 14th to October. 18th, and we would love for folks to get involved. You can learn more and participate on social media using the hashtags IPV is an RJ issue and DV is an RJ issue. And you can also follow along at urge underscore org on Twitter to learn more. Um, you know, we know that this is a conversation so many people want to have. And so we're really looking forward to creating a space where, you know, survivors, advocates, lawmakers can come together and really talk about this. 
Yeah, and I'm really excited. Um, before we went on the break, you were talking about complicating the narrative and you know really taking a look at the dominant narrative and removing that. So I'm excited for this week of solidarity where we can continue uh, lifting up that particular conversation. Great. Um, and we'll be happy to share out more information at the end of this as well. Um, so Mohini, um, what are the barriers you see in place that are preventing action on domestic violence prevention and are getting help or justice for those who have experience with domestic violence and intimate partner violence? And if you can go a little bit into uh, about the dynamics around domestic violence as well. Yeah, so there are, there are the personal barriers and the practical barriers. And I'm, I'm going to start with the practical barriers first, just because I want to be for folks to kind of get a sense of, of what they would encounter if they tried to get help today for a domestic violence yeah. issue. Um, so I really encourage anyone listening, um, you know, after the show to take a minute to look up exactly where, when, and how they could file for a restraining order in their area. Is it called a restraining order? Where's the courthouse? When's the courthouse open? What forms do you need? Can you fill them out on a computer or do you need to do it with a pen? Do you need a lawyer? Can you do it on your own? Is the courthouse accessible if you can't use the stairs? Is the courthouse accessible if you need to walk there and you can't drive? Think through all of those things because understanding the law is a full-time job and we regularly expect people to set aside time in the middle of a crisis to understand complicated legal language. On top of that, the information itself is really hard to find. Most people who go to court won't have a lawyer. Many people will have limited proficiency in English. Some of them might be dealing with injuries from the violence itself. An incredible number of domestic violence survivors have traumatic brain injuries. Um, next to um, soldiers recovering from um, wartime trauma, it's domestic violence survivors. So you hear a lot about soldiers and football players. We really should be talking about trauma survivors right here. Um, that's why plain language re legal resources and translated legal resources are so important. The legal system should be a system for the public, and it should be usable by the public. Less than a percent of people in the United States are lawyers, but that's those are the only people we expect to be able to use the legal system with any proficiency. Um, the entire legal system can't be structured for just that less than a percent of people. Um, and then you have the personal barriers, right? Like that's assuming that you even are ready to encounter all of those legal solutions, that you're ready to deal with the legalese. Then you have these personal issues, which is that just, this is probably a person you love, right? Think about right now, today, if the person you love turned into a monster, right? Like if you're listening right now, there's somebody maybe that you're going home to, maybe it's your partner, maybe it's a parent, maybe you have somebody else in your life that's a loved one and they just become a monster because that's what happened one day for somebody who's a survivor of domestic violence. Um, this wasn't a person who started off hurting them. On their first date, this person wasn't mean. Um, on their second date, this person wasn't mean. On their you know, 20th date, this person might not have been mean. It might have been years, right? No one actually knows, right? There at some point, things changed in a way you didn't recognize when they were changing. Um, this is a person you love, and it could be anyone. Um, and it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you went to college. It doesn't matter if you are living in your hometown or you moved 100 miles away. It doesn't matter if you are white or black or brown. It doesn't matter if you are an immigrant or if you were born here and your family was born here and everyone you've ever known has been born here. 
you could be anyone and you went home today and the person you love turned out to be a monster just all of a sudden and that's what happened to somebody one day and you would have to find a way to explain that right to yourself and to your in your head you'd have to find a way to rationalize it and the thing you would want isn't to stop loving that person you would want for them to stop being a monster and that's what most survivors want they don't want to leave the person they love they want the person they love to come back and stop hurting them and dealing with that personal narrative working with that person and and trying to make them understand that the narrative has changed and that they have to change with the narrative too is the hardest part because nobody wants their narrative to change midway you have a story in your head of who you are and what your life looks like and you don't want to get surprised in the middle of that right you're gearing towards a happy ending when you're in a domestic violence situation you thought you'd gotten your happy ending you don't want to find out that this isn't it and there's so many myths um and and that really stand in the way of even being able to have a conversation about how common um, intimate partner violence is. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this idea that folks have that, you know, a, a survivor looks a certain way or acts a certain way, right? The idea, I mean, I'll say with my own experience with intimate partner violence, the fact that I'm like a professional feminist who was abused by someone I was dating, um, it took me a long time and frankly a lot of support from other survivors to be able to realize that it didn't make me less strong just because I'd had this experience, right? Right? And so we have to interrupt and dismantle these cultural narratives that tell survivors that um, experiencing violence somehow makes us not who we thought we were. And, and let's also be clear, survivors are the strongest people you'll ever meet, right? Imagine going through every day of your life not knowing that violence was going to happen, that somebody was going to be mentally cruel to you, verbally cruel to you, physically cruel to you, not knowing when it was coming, right? Sometimes it could be lovely, right? That this is from the person you love most, that this was just going to be an ordinary day, but things could go haywire at any moment. You have to be really, really strong to get through that. So when we put forward a narrative that these are people who are weak or who are just incapable or who don't know what they're doing, that is the exact opposite of what's happening. Survivors are the experts on their life. They've figured out a way to cope in circumstances that so many people couldn't get through a single hour of, much less days, weeks, months of. Yeah, and I think it's really great how you were able to parse that together. I mean, there's a lot of nuance there, right, of like the personal barriers as well as the practical barriers. Because it just reminded me of like being on a college campus and trying to figure out how to get financial aid or even figure out like where my classes were and like how information was just not accessible. And I had to like figure that out to have something like that impacted by um, experiencing trauma. Right. Mm -hmm. Is really challenging. Right. And I think that narrative around weakness and also the narrative of like the shame, the stigma, Mm -hmm. the self-blame and even trying to find that internal sort of, you know, to. survive a situation is like challenging and I don't think we have a lot of space for those kinds of conversations and really lift that up so it's great that you're able to share that information resource and really contextualize it in a way that um, really simplifies a very complicated kind of narrative yeah um, and I think that um, we you're we are also talking about how this is this is everybody. I appreciated how you sort of mentioned that this is everybody. But um, I think also um, we wanted to talk through a, a little bit um, about how uh, marginalized communities also experience domestic violence or intimate partner violence in some unique ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, 
how are people from marginalized communities treated differently when it comes to domestic violence? And I think this is maybe a question that either of you um, are open to. Yeah, so I can start. You know, there there are two um, pieces of this story that I want to lift up. One is around who is experiencing violence, right? So we know, for example, as I as I mentioned, that queer and bisexual both men and women are more likely to experience intimate partner violence than their heterosexual counterparts. We know that Native and Indigenous women have among the highest rates of experiences of intimate partner violence. So when we think about the experience of an of an interpersonal trauma compound often, frankly, by generational trauma, right? We're talking about communities that have experienced state violence for generations, and all of that comes together. So so there is, on the one level, that marginalized folks oftentimes are more likely to experience violence, and then uh, the second layer is, Mohini was talking about all of the logistical barriers, right, to getting a restraining order, even to, you know, perhaps if someone has become pregnant um, and doesn't want to be pregnant and is experiencing violence, how do they get an abortion, right? How do they do so maybe without their partner finding out about it, right? So all of those logistical concerns, whether it's trying to get a lawyer, trying to get the health care you need, um, all of that is harder if you're low income. All of that is harder if English is not your first language, right? So there's both the experience of the violence itself, and then there is navigating was frankly a, a labyrinth of stigma and shame and restrictions that are designed to really kind of keep you away from getting mental health care, from getting justice, from getting to safety. So so marginalized communities, again, must be at the center of the conversation, not only of how we prevent violence, but how we actually take care of survivors once it's happened. Yeah. And, uh, and just to follow up on that, uh, part of it is the availability of the resources, too, right? The um, I just want to point out, let me see if I can find this. We do this thing at NNEDV every year. It's the NNEDV census, and it's one day a year, we ask um, domestic violence programs all over the country to report back on what services they were able to offer, what services they weren't able to offer, how many people they helped that day. And it's really a snapshot of what happened on this day um, across the country. So thousands of programs participate and let us know, here's who we were able to help, here's who we weren't able to help, and here's our stories we heard. And one thing that we heard um, last year that really speaks to what Kimberly was just talking about, um, here's a story from a California advocate. A transgender woman called our agency to learn about our support program for LGBTQ people. It was hard for her to navigate support and resources that are culturally competent and friendly towards her. She did not feel safe at a homeless shelter, and the only LGBTQ shelter had a two to three month wait list. Right, so when you're dealing with like, there is an LGBTQ shelter, but there's a two to three month wait list. Mm -hmm. It's not just the fact that the resources exist, it's how many resources are there. Right. There are culturally competent resources. There are culturally competent places. There are LGBTQ specific shelters. But there are more people than can possibly fit in the existing and available shelters. There's a need for everyone. And that need is always going to impact marginalized communities more. Um, and I think what you uh, just um, emphasized there from uh, that that survey survey is um, how storytelling is um, extremely important to this space in particular. Um, Mohini, why do you think um, why do you think that is, and how can we support people who are standing up and telling their stories about um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence? So one of the amazing things, I think, about the domestic violence movement in general is that it really came from people who had been through domestic violence, right? Mm. If you look at the history of this movement um, and, and how it emerged, it was people 
recognizing that this was a problem, right? Like these words that we're using very casually in this conversation, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, abuser, victim, survivor, these didn't exist 30 years ago, right? Like we're very casually using words that that weren't in our vocabulary 30 years ago. Um, And these really came from people who had been through domestic violence and realized it was a problem and that they didn't have to live like this. Um, And it came from them sharing their stories and building upon those stories and recognizing that they didn't, that not only was it normalized, but that it shouldn't be normal, right? That they were suffering alone, that they didn't have to be suffering alone, and that there had to be a better way to live their lives. Um, And I think we still share those stories, right? The census is important, for instance, because it lets advocates and survivors know that they're not alone, that they're doing really hard work, but that work can get them somewhere. Um, Another story I pulled was um, a survivor with two children called stating that she had just left her abuser and needed a place to stay, but our shelter had no beds available. She said, I will sleep in my car because I, before I keep my kids in that unsafe situation. And that's from Oklahoma. And I, I grabbed that one because I think it highlights both the need across the country and the resilience of survivors, right? The, the need is huge. Um, everyday shelters and advocates just don't have enough resources, even though domestic violence advocates are the hardest working people. Um, one of my coworkers calls them professional helpers. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's exactly what they are. They'll make magic out of mud, um, mm. but eventually you run out of mud. Right. <laughs> we desperately need more resources for everyone and alongside that we need more culturally specific resources right there's only one national organization for um, domestic violence um, uh, resources for black women for instance Um, that's Ujima by the way everyone should hit them up donate your money Um, (laughs) but even I think what also what that quote shows is not only is there a need but there is hope right I'm not going back that shows grit. It shows resilience. Um, survivors, again, are the experts in their life. They've survived so far. They know how to stay safe, and they're not turning around now. And, you know, I think one of the best ways that we can, frankly, honor the, the bravery and the stories of survivors is to ha- question the systems that are currently in place. We owe survivors better than offering as the only solution putting people in cages, people who they may still love, people who may be important economic supports for their family, to say to someone, your options are nothing or send someone to prison, it, it's just not enough. And and I think particularly for, you know, queer and trans folks, for black and brown folks, we know that the, the carceral system was not made to help us, it was made to hurt us. And so it's not a system that a lot of people feel comfortable engaging with. And we need to explore things like transformative justice, restorative justice, and take these seriously as options that could point the way for a better outcome for survivors, their families, and for our country at large. Thank you for sharing that, Kimberly and uh, Mohini, for talking a little bit more about um, the power of stories here. Um, And we're going to go to a commercial break. And after this commercial break, I want to talk a little bit more about some solutions that we're seeing um, at the state and federal level. Um, Talk about where there might be some hope, some glimmers of hope on the horizon. Um, You have been listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. We are talking about Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we will be right back after this commercial break. Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. 
And your other co-host here, Ed with Thea Jean. Um, and today we're talking about Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we've got um, some great guests in studio. Uh, we've got Mohini Lal from the National Network to End Domestic Violence, as well as Kimberly Inez McGuire um, from Urge. Um, and uh, we were going to come back and talk a little bit more about um, some solutions um, to uh, to domestic violence and um, intimate partner uh, violence here um, at the federal, state, and um, individual level. Yeah. Um, at the end of our last conversation, uh, Kimberly ended saying that one of the best ways that we can support survivors is to question the systems. Um, so let's talk about some more systems at play. Uh, Mohini, um, are either federal or state legislators taking any important action on domestic violence that we should be aware of? So everyone out there should be urging the Senate for swift passage of the Violence Against Women Act. We need a VAWA for all. Um, you can head to the NNADV's website to learn more about VAWA, but really the Violence Against Women Act is one of the most important pieces of legislation we've passed in the fight against domestic violence ever. It's the first piece of legislation we've really passed in the fight against domestic violence ever. Um, and it in the newest version includes um, ending you know, the impunity for non-native perpetrators of violence against native women and children. Like for instance, right now, if you are not native and you enact violence against um, a native woman or a child on native lands, freebie, right? And that's like really, I just wanna like, that's really jarring because I know that um, the statistics around violence against indigenous folks is really, really high. And that the majority of the violence that is committed against indigenous folks are not from folks within their community. Right. So basically people are going into indigenous communities committing harms and violence and then just like walking No away. accountability. Yeah. Right, and there are different legal systems on tribal lands, for instance, right? There are tribal courts, there are tribal codes. Um, and we need to be able to actually have the funding and the legal force behind those for people to gain protections from those systems. Um, we need to increase investment in domestic violence, uh, domestic and sexual violence prevention, right? We talked a little bit earlier about the importance of like getting to young people before they've been affected by domestic and sexual violence, right? If you're talking to people when they're college age, you're you've been there too late. So really passing VAWA is one of the most important things we can do right now. And I think it's also uh, important to note that the most recent VAWA, despite the name, also does include protections for transgender and non-binary folks, which was a really important and hard-fought victory that I want to lift up. Great point, great point. So I want to make sure um, in just about the minute that we have left here that folks are able to figure out where they can find more information about the work, that the great work that you are both doing, um, and where they can find um, more about you if you'd like to share um, that as well. So um, Mohini, why don't we start with you? Where can fi folks find more about the National Network to End Domestic Violence? So you can go to womenslaw.org for plain language legal information and information about NNEDV and to donate. Um, we also have information about our 31 and 31 campaign for Domestic Violence Awareness Month at both websites. Great. And then um, we have also have Kim Kimberly Inez McGuire here from URGE. Where can folks find more about you and your work? So you could go to our website, URGE.org, but I think our Instagram is way better. So <laughs> check us out Instagram. on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at URGE underscore org. Um, also, just a reminder to folks to look up the and participate in the hashtags IPV is an RJ issue and DV is an RJ issue. We really hope you can join the conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining us in studio today. You have been listening to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall show. I am your co I'm your co-host Charlotte Hancock and I'm your other co-host Edwith Theogene and we will be back next week with more. Talk to you on Wednesday.